Hi, I'm Marcy. And I'm Akko. And welcome to the Color Pages Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from colorful backgrounds. Woo! Colorful backgrounds! Yes. So today, everyone, we have a special interview episode, and we will be interviewing Larissa Lai, author of Tiger Flu, which, as you all know, we have been reading as a part of our book club for the past two weeks. We so. Sure have. And we have had many thoughts and feelings. Um, So along with Tiger Flu, Larissa has also written a number of other literary works, including Saltfish Girl and When Fox is a Thousand. She is currently an associate professor and research chair in the Department of English at the University of Calgary in Canada. So Larissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Akko. Thanks, Marcy. I'm really excited to be here. Yes. Um, So as our listeners know, Usually at this point, I have a question. (laughs) 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 A creature of habit. (laughs) Yes. Um, So in part one, me and Marcy discussed how to stop an apocalypse, whatever that means and in whatever form that kind of resonates with us. So Larissa, since you wrote this book, which has apocalyptic elements to it, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, how do you stop an apocalypse? Huh, I thought you were going to ask this question at the end and not the start, and now I'm all flustered. Um, <laughs> I have thoughts. I have thoughts. I do have thoughts. It's a really great question, obviously, because we're living in a moment where, you know, the world is sure changing fast with, you know, climate change and with a very strange man in the White House and mm. the rise yep. of you know populist movements all over the world doing things that don't seem like they would actually be good for the populace. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like, you know, it's a great question to ask and obviously one that is that is on my mind, um, you know, in the writing of this book. What I would start by saying is it's really important to recognize that the idea of apocalypse is a Western idea. It's a biblical idea, right? It comes from the book mm. of the Bible. And um, we have this fear, it's, you know, for any of us, like, you know, regardless of whether we're carrying other cultures or not, and I think all three of us are, but we are inheritors of Western mm-hmm. Western culture if we live in, in Canada or the U.S. and inheritors of this idea of apocalypse as, you know, this, this sudden moment, right? The great cataclysm mm-hmm. that's yeah. going and get us all um, and the world will end at that point. Um, But I just I guess I just really want to remind us that, you know, the idea itself is an idea that's located in a specific culture. This idea Mm -hmm. of sudden, a sudden rupture that breaks everything. And so I just want to recognize that, you know, for any of us who are, quote unquote, of color or black or indigenous or Asian or however we identify, that we're very likely carrying other ideas about the way the world changes. Ah, oh, I like that. Mm. That are not so much about cataclysm. And it, that doesn't mean, and therefore, global warming doesn't exist. Or <laughs> that doesn't mean that. Right. We believe the scientists, right? We believe in science. We believe the scientists. Right. But what it might offer us um, are other models and other ways of thinking about how to deal with just the fact of change. Hmm. And so for me in the last little while, I've been, I've been, I mean, I've been doing alliance work for, you know, a very, very, very long time. Never perfectly, always try my best, often messing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that sort of been sitting with me the last little while, you know, living here, 
um, in Blackfoot territories, Treaty 7 territories, north of the 49th, and trying to mm -hmm. think about my relationship with the original peoples of this land and how to live better on the land than I do mm -hmm. without appropriating somebody else's culture, right? Because I'm not, mm. not, I'm not, you know, I'm not Blackfoot. I'm not Stony Nakoda. I'm not Métis. I'm, you know, I'm this middle-class Asian gal who works in the university. Mm. Um, so not to just kind of lift that stuff, stuff wholesale from the culture that was here before I got here. Um, mm -hmm. But to try to find a way of doing um, of doing the work of relation building by honoring the knowledges, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. which I've been thinking about it is to turn to the Tao. Oh, you know, right, because yeah. that is like a cult, a form of cultural knowledge that I carry in my own history and my own background. I mean, I can't mm -hmm. say I was raised in it, but it's there as part of my cultural history. And Taoism mm -hmm. is precisely a theory of change. Oh, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. Please. A theory, a, a theory and a practice of change that recognizes cataclysms and that mm -hmm. also recognizes times when things may move, you know, slower or faster or move in, you know, more than one direction at the same time. And so when you ask me then, how do you stop an apocalypse? I would say the first thing to do would be to turn to you know, a cultural knowledge systems where that might offer might offer just us just a little bit more agency from the location mm. of habit. So I'm not saying and therefore you two must also embrace. I'm just saying mm -hmm. this is my way of kind of being in it and thinking about then, you know, if the if the if climate is changing, if the carbon levels in our atmosphere are rising, mm -hmm. um, there's a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment, if um, you know, there's an increase in the desire to do resource extraction or whatever mm -hmm. is the way then in that kind of in a kind of more, you know, biblical way to kind of put up your sword and go, OK, everybody just stop. Or do I come from a time and place and way of knowing that might be more just kind of attentive to the shifts and changes and be willing to kind of sit with them? And I think one of the things that the Tao offers that's really useful is really being able to pay attention to the various interactions among forces mm -hmm. and then to move with or against them kind of depending on the specific moment so it requires then a, a different kind of recognition of what you know of what time it is in a sense right like what is right. what is this time right. and where am i and what am i doing like in this particular time and place as opposed to you know where you are marcy in ecuador or Ako, are you in dc is that where you are Oh, I'm just floating around the Midwest. Lord knows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever you are floating around the Midwest, yet obviously in, in different bodies coming out of different histories, might still have ways of paying attention to where we are, when we are, the whole complex of things mm. um, happening in the time and place where we're inhabiting now. And then my thinking is that, you know, it just gives you a little bit more agency in terms of figuring out, okay, well, how am I going to flow with this thing today? Like, should mm. I put my clothes on the clothesline today? Because even though it's late fall, it's actually quite nice out. And I don't actually have to use the dryer, right, to dry my sheets, although I could. Oh, stay. I see. Mm -hmm. right? um, nice. Whereas, you know, maybe whatever. My friend Melanie in Newfoundland, where it's it's raining like crazy, she doesn't have that option. But maybe there are other mm. things, right, that she's able to do. So it's a very long answer. But, yeah, I guess 
I, I've been thinking about this idea of apocalypse for a long time and mm-hmm. just kind of thinking about like how I would reimagine and revalence it. And yeah, I thought that might be a useful way to think about your question. Ooh, I like that. I like because it's almost like you're saying the way to hold the apocalypse is to not think of it as an apocalypse and kind of recognize that that's one way that change has been characterized in a lot of societies and particularly Western Mm -hmm. society. But is it is change in and of itself or the end of an era in and of itself, you know, the end of everything? Or is it just a moment of change of flux? And when you see it that way and to move with that, I I guess to see instead of seeing the post-apocalypse as something outside of the human story, it's actually just another part of the human story. So I really like that idea. Oh, thanks. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, ditto, Ditto. I was just going to like what I was going to say, Aqua just said it. So, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I love the challenge of, of apocalypse as like this sort of like innate concept. Um, yeah, it's kind of like speaks more to sort of framing in like cultural cultural context. I guess kind of get started. So we have a lot of listeners who I'm sure are interested in, you know, writing and things of that nature. So I'm kind of just curious, like, what is your journey as a writer been like through time? Mm-hmm. Sure. Thanks, Marcy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changed a lot depending on the moment. So I started writing, you know, in my late teens, so fairly early, but I didn't really get started like in a kind of serious way until. Well, probably a long, I would imagine a long time ago for the two of you. Just uh, so long ago <laughs> to me, but oh, that's what happens, hey? So in the early 90s, I, I had a job right out of my undergrad working on an exhibition called Yellow Peril Reconsidered, which was an exhibition. Mm. I know it was really great. We tend to forget these things, you know, it, I guess it was, gosh, it's almost 30 years now. It seems like, it feels like yesterday. Ah, this is what all the old ladies say, hey? <laughs> It's only going to get worse. <laughs> well, just think about how much you know, you know. Come on. Anyway, continue, please. Oh, sure. Um, so it was an exhibit of um, film, video, and um, photo-based installation. So we call it contemporary media at that time. Mm-hmm. And I realize now, like, it's changed so much, like, with the rise of the internet and all of that, which existed, to be fair, in 1991. Mm. But just it wasn't such an intense, intense kind of presence in our lives as it is now. Anyway, it was around that I started to write. So I was I was hired as an assistant curator. And what that meant was that I got to meet all these amazing artists, you know, at a fairly young age who were doing all of these incredible things in a moment for me when this whole notion of, you know, the possibility of like an Asian Canadian art or an Asian Canadian literature seemed brand new and very exciting. Um, and so that was when I started. I got a, a little grant uh, in 1993 from um, the mm-hmm. Canada Council, which is, um, I think, like, it's in Canada. It's like it's like the National Foundation for the Arts, I think, in the U.S. Mm. Okay. Anyway, it's a little grant, $9,000, which I stretched to last a whole year. What? <laughs> I know, right? Well, it was 1993, and I was frugal. Fair. Fair. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> 
Um, so I stretched it to last a year and I completed a, a draft of my first novel when Fox is a thousand. Which I didn't think anyone was going to read except my mom and maybe a few of my friends, but I don't feel <laughs> more recognition than I than I ever thought I would, which was incredibly intimidating. So like I was given an Australia Foundation Emerging Writers Award, which I think comes from this um, a lesbian foundation in New York. So that was like hugely, you know, um, um, validating. Right. And then I was also shortlisted for the Books in Canada First Novel Award for that book. So it did really change things. It made it possible for me to do the work. Wow. And then after that, of course, it, you know, it just it felt like the pressure was on. And so writing the second novel, which turned out to be Salt Fish Girl, um, was hugely... Oh, I just had such bad writer's block um, where Fox had just kind of flowed because I was so excited and I didn't think anybody was looking. Right. With all eyes on me, uh, and it felt like every you know everybody was looking. I was so blocked for such a long time, and of course the clock was ticking on. Right? I don't know you guys. I don't know if you remember, but uh, I mean the turn of the millennium, the world economics politics switched quite radically. Mm. But the major things that happened up here north of the 49th is that um there was a big economic shift and arts funding kind of dried up like crazy. So where before I had been making a living doing a lot right. of, you know, kind of like living off like small grants, like that first one that I got, and then doing bits of arts organizing contracts and stuff like that on the in-between, suddenly it became very difficult um, mm. to, in that kind of way. Um, and in the meantime, I was living in this housing co-op that was, you know, not healthy and in a relationship that was falling apart. I ended up going mm -hmm. back to school. And then in the academy, it was a very different kind of relationship to the practice then so I finished Saltfish Girl in England while working on a, an MA at the University of East Anglia mm. and then like you know there's all this kind of workshop community but also weird relationships to to the industry to agents to publishing stuff like that that I found quite stressful so you know all through that period I found myself very much kind of longing for a return in a way even though you know, that had been quite hard, but that period when I was writing Fox now just sort of seems, mm -hmm. it seems so, it just seems so idyllic um, because, because there was no, because I was young and there was no pressure. Right. Yeah. As I continued on, you know, I ended up like becoming an academic and now I would say I'm fairly fully ensconced on the inside. Um, it's a very different kind of relationship to my practice. Um, I'd still do it. I try to do it on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, stay in the conversations as much as I can. But, you know, I'm also teaching. I'm also doing a mountain of administration. Um, I also have students of my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interesting. Can yeah. I just ask a little bit about so you're saying that you felt when there was less pressure on you that you could almost write more free freely. And, and then as you got, I guess, more attention that that changed. How did that could you tell a little bit more about like how did how did that feel when you were writing to sort of think about other factors as opposed to when you're writing your first novel, which it seems those factors didn't really influence you? Right, right. I mean, now, you know, I would say in those early days, in those early days of having attention, um, it was I found it very paralyzing. Mm. I tell you. So the way I got out of it, so I was living in that housing co-op. I felt the attention, which was often quite nice attention, but it was also, you know, like, where's the next one? Where's the next one? It was stressful. Right, right. I became a little bit depressed. Hmm. And 
things that people that are depressed do, or it can happen, is they sleep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Way more than somebody, I guess, by that time I was in my late 20s, early 30s, found myself mm-hmm. sleeping like a, a lot. Um, And as I slept, I began to dream. And the more I slept, the more vivid the dreams became. And I started writing them down when I would wake up in the morning. And sometimes I'd wake up in the morning, you know, like late, like a teenager, I'd wake up in the morning like at 11 a.m. or noon or, God forbid, you know, one, mm-hmm. having these dreams in my head. And I would write them down until it was dark again. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is cool. And, and so that is, that's how I got the, the image system for Saltfish Girl was just by writing, like writing and writing and writing those dreams until a story began to sort of take shape. And then... You know, I got I, I had something. And then once I had something, I could I could I could move with it. So it's interesting. Hey, so it's almost like a cycle, like the depression came from having to write. And then that actually led into you kind of freeing yourself from that. Dep- that's cool. I'm glad that that happened, although I'm not glad that you were depressed. I'm oh, sorry about that. You. I'm doing OK. I'm doing OK. And I don't sleep mm-hmm. till 11 anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just quick question. About that, did you find that as you began to write your dreams more, your dreams kind of became more streamlined in a way? Like they kind of mm. catered themselves to Saltfish Girl? Or was it like the dreams just were about whatever, but sometimes they wove together in some interesting ways? That's a good question. You know, I wrote it all down. I'd have to go back and look. Mm. I drew from them to build that book. And of course, I was looking for something coherent. And so I've drawn out of them what was coherent, but that doesn't mm. mean all kinds of other scattered stuff that, you know, I mean, it was 20 years ago. I've long since forgotten the dreams, right. but I've, ri- I've had dream journals. So, I mean, they're written down. I could go look, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, cool. Just just curious. Yeah, that's so along with dreams, are there any other what any other aspects of life or just your imagination that inspires the worlds you build? Because with Saltfish Girl, that's that's dreamly related. But Tiger Flu is also a very particular type of world. So where did you draw inspiration when it came to Tiger Flu? Yeah, Tiger Flu is, is a very different kind of book, although connected, but very different, mm. a very different moment in life. So through that period of my of I'd say my 20s and into my early 30s, a lot of the places where I was drawing inspiration would be, you know, from folk and fairy tale and trying to think about, you know, ways in which, like this is an old feminist practice, right, that kind of comes, mm. I think back to the 60s and 70s, it's probably way earlier than that um, because, yeah, I mean, I imagine it would like go back, you know, to those fairy tale collecting moments, like that romantic nationalist moment in Europe. Mm. probably gets taken up in Asia anyway I'm just guessing go ask a historian because I <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I you know I'm borrowing a lot from feminist writers of the 60s and 70s who um who would do that who would take fairy tales I mean a lot of the ones that I was reading at that time were western so they would take you know Little Red Riding Hood like I love Angela Carter for instance mm-hmm. um Take Little Red Riding Hood, turn it upside down on its feminist head and put the the girl in the red hood, give her power over the wolf, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trying to think about, you know, how in a Chinese Canadian context, I might swing that. But the difficulty, of course, is that um, Chinese folk and fairy tales, they're not really very widely known at all in the West. So, you know, Fox was very much mm-hmm. a process of kind of like learning them, reading them, learning them and then trying to turn them 
mm. in ways that would would speak to the present moment that I was living in. Um, so that remains an impulse. I mean, I did so much of that work in my early life that I think it's just kind of become a little bit second nature to me now, kind of thinking in, you know, mythic and fairy tale, folktale kind of terms. Mm. Um, tiger flu, I let it go as a as a conscious practice. Although I think as you read the book, you'll see, you know, it's still very much there. Like, it's not like it, it ever actually goes away, but I'm just not doing it quite so deliberately. Right. And then, so for that book, I, I mean, one of the big things I was aware of was that I wasn't done with the clone women. I don't know if you have, you've read Saltfish Girl, but the end of Saltfish Girl, one of the protagonists is a clone and the other one ends up living with her in a in a in a village of clones um in the mm. near in the near to distant future so and that was the sort of happily ever after right as we escape to this utopia of like all women clones <laughs> right the feminist commune that you know <laughs> the feminist commune and there you know i am drawing like i mean i i am drawing from a lot of that kooky kind of second wave feminist spec fiction stuff like um you know mm -hmm. like Joanna Russ is the female man and Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time and you know one of my favorites actually is um Monique Vitigue's um Les Guerrières The Warriors which is also an experiment in language but thinking about mm. it is definitely right the moment of the lesbian separatist commune for sure which I think, you know, it's a moment that is much past. There was a very sad article in the Times or the Washington Post or something recently that said, you know, these communes, nobody wants to live in them anymore. It's so sad. Um, mm. But but I think also I think it's also OK, because I think the moment has moved on. Right. And our our way of, you know, understanding the politics of gender has really changed since that time. And I think changed for the better. Like there were all kinds of things that those gals just really hadn't quite figured out, which is fine. I mean, they, you know, it was another moment. Mm -hmm. It was important. They were progressive people. But our thinking has so much moved on and um, and so fine that, you know, those those communes are, are, are I mean, I still have the fantasy, but I guess. <laughs> fine. Um, so I want but I want continue to think about them right because because I had set it up as this kind of utopic space in the in the last novel and so then in this one I'm like well you know no utopia is actually utopia and goodness only knows right now right in our progressive mm -hmm. communities we're going through a moment when the extent of the lateral violence is just I know it's happening in the states too and it's bad up here in Canada it's really it's stressful it's awful it's painful it's brutal and it's really mm -hmm to do the work of of idealism somehow it seems without that violence mm. and so Ooh. And just to clarify, when you say lateral violence, you almost mean people trying to do the work of progressiveness, almost like um, hitting each other, basically, like exactly. shrapnel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just the way that people, you know, can tend to get so invested in doing like the cultural politics and doing them in a good way. And then it becomes a kind of competition and people mm -hmm. can help one another through judging. Oh, you know, I saw you buy a plastic water bottle or, um, oh, my gosh, your shoes are Nikes or whatever. Right. Mm. That, or, or way worse things than that or more ambivalent, difficult things, you know, relating mm. about somebody who being abusive and you're not sure if it's true and that person's your friend. And do you cut them or don't you? and right it, it's so mm -hmm. diff so difficult and so yeah. I want to just sort of set up this like all clone utopia as though and you know and then they lived ha happily ever after I wanted in this novel to kind of think through a place where it starts there's a utopian impulse that sets it up but it's not mm -hmm. a utopia and there are all these problems because 
invariably there will be. And I feel like, you know, in progressive communities, we need to have ways of storying these things, narrativizing these things, maybe to help us live through them because they're going to happen, right? And I mean, I think one of the things, you know, that can happen a lot in progressive community and especially, you know, as a young, as when you're, when one is young, one comes out of, you know, a mainstream or a conservative place, you find your community, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh my God, I finally arrived. And then people are mean and you're like, what the heck? People are mean. What is this? (laughs) Right. Right? Yeah. You almost hope that if we're all kind of working towards an ideal world that we won't fall to the same like human fallacies of pettiness but it's not true right. it's not true and then some somehow we do and you know and then when it does it sort of tends to reverberate and so you know that very much on my mind I lived through it in a very painful way through the 1990s mm. and now I'm witnessing it again and I sort of feel like one of the things you know that my generation has a responsibility to to do having in a sense mm-hmm. gone through it once albeit differently because it's always different I think with each generation but right. I feel like you know we have a responsibility to pass on the dynamic that we recognize to pass on the the strategies and techniques and ways of being and doing that we've figured out so that it doesn't have to be so painful. I don't know that we're doing such a great job, but I mean, one of the ways I think about this novel is, you know, I'm trying to do my bit just in terms of trying to, I guess, commit to paper some of the dynamics um, that mm-hmm. I, I that I lived through, you know, albeit here very much fictionalized to the point of spec fiction. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that that's where this particular book comes from. Mm, that's in part there's it has many other birthplaces as well oh fair fair that's cool because i think what you see at the beginning of the novel with auntie radix yes yes auntie mm-hmm. radix and and even the groom um relationship yeah. with the mother with the with everyone and and taking care of the starfish and taking care of the the main mother you see the sort of consumptive relationship there and i think me and marcy were talking about when we were reading it because we were mm-hmm. like oh you know in a way this is a utopia there's clones and it's queer and it's great and 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 since woman but you're like but there's still this aspect of sort of predatory taking and and it was cool for us to see that in a novel that kind of, I guess, examined examined what would what would I uh, the utopia look like, and how does the utopia fall apart? And if we're going to talk about women as pe- being people, complex people, how are the ways that we hurt each other when we make society? Because yeah. in a lot of times we're fighting the part- mm. patriarchy, but then we have to ask ourselves, what kind of harm do we do if we're gonna, you know, give ourselves the humanity that we deserve? We're also fallible. So we really enjoyed that part of the book. Oh, thank you, thank you so much for saying that. And y- yeah, and you've just articulated it so beautifully so I'm really glad that you saw that because it was very much on my mind I mean and another thing you recognizing you know is is the relationship of, of production and consumption which is something that's kind of a theme running through the book so I'm trying right. to think about right. like how can we get out of these relationships of consuming stuff consuming the earth but also consuming one another and you see right. that it's you know, in the Grist sister, like in the Grist village, that is a thing that the women, like they just, they can't, they're, in order for them to survive, there is this cycle, right, of, you know, Mm -hmm. one gives birth, one gives organs, one takes care of them, and if any one of the three steps out of the set of relationships, then the people just, they don't survive, so it is another way just of saying we all need to eat, right, right, but then also, so, and we all we need to reproduce as well. Like if we're going right, to get right. men, which I am not necessarily proposing or propounding, it's just a <laughs> right. Men, men are lovely, 
Um, but it's just, it's just a fictional, it's a fictional conceit. Yeah. But so then if, you know, if reproduction is going to like, if heterosexuality is an issue, then where are the babies supposed to come from? This is something that those seventies gals were thinking mm. of a lot as well. Right. Mm. But in a different way. So we got to eat and we got to come back or we don't get to go on. And what if in doing those things, it's already twisted and we're already implicated, you know? Oh, like I see. You say implicated in the world, like you don't get to leave the world unless you leave the world and then that's the apocalypse or, you right. know, right? Or you're uploaded, you know, there's so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> And so I guess like while we're on the topic of discussing, um, you know, these like dynamics and the Gris Village and everything, Aqua and I in particular were wondering sort of in the book, how would things have changed in your opinion had Kirilo's lover remained alive? And like, like if the mm. two of them were allowed to kind of continue existing, I, I guess, how would you compare, say, that hypothetical power dynamic with that of, say, the dynamic between Kirilo and Korra that develops later on in the book once, you know, they're in the Thoughtwater City and all of that. Right. That is such, I love this question so much. <laughs> I think this is actually a writing question. Ooh. So when I set out the framework, like when I kind of got to that point in writing where I was kind of firming down the plot for sure, mm -hmm. it was set up so Peristrophe has to die. Mm. Huh. she doesn't get to have and this is one of the things right about this is the nature of fiction and its difference from life is mm -hmm. that there is no if otherwise there is no if otherwise peristrophe is is written as a figure who is meant to die she's i borrow her you know like she's madame butterfly or she's like she's mimi from la boheme she's this romantic figure mm. beautiful mm. and lovely and sweet and giving and it has to die and it's a narrative it's a trope so in terms of thinking about them, you know, I know you guys are idealistic and it was lovely <laughs> to kind of imagine how how their lives might have continued otherwise, but that wasn't the project of the novel. Right. I see. I see. So it's almost like she's a metaphor for for the idealism, for the utopia not being sustainable. Sure. Yeah. Or not. Or she's a sacrifice figure, right? Ah, that I see. Yeah, yeah. Of course, she has character, and of course, I have to write her so that she seems real, and you know. But she is also—it's her death that motivates Kirilo and pushes her. Well, for, first of all, pushes her into grief, and then on right. the second pass after the village is invaded, pushes her out into the world and pushes her to—you know—to change, to be, to try to find a way to be a little bit less selfish and to be a bit more um, attuned to the world the world around her mm. it's the narrative that's the setup right yeah right. you guys are so disappointed well i guess <laughs> it's, i guess my question is could perry we called her perry because we i guess we just started calling her perry but could perry have been um, could perry have still been that motivation while while not necessarily being sweet or perfect almost in like a concept of like you love people not because they're good or perfect or be, just because you love them you know like i have siblings and sometimes i would just rather they went away forever but i would still <laughs> fight tooth and nail you know if anything ever happened to them right right because they're um, your family but they're so annoying at the same time right right <laughs> this would be like wow we listened to her podcast and she said we're annoying so <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, she could be. She could have been. I didn't write her that way. Like I was very conscious of making her. I don't know why. I guess it's this sort of fairy tale, you know, it's that mm-hmm. those fairy tale beginnings. I did want this character who's just who's like so perfect and so doomed. And so that was the way I wrote her. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be possible to write such a character, of course, another way and give them make give them, you know, a little more internal contradiction, a little more complexity. Um, because she's a kind of, she's an impetus figure. Um, really, she's, in a lot of ways, she's part of the character building um, for Kirilo. Mm. And I was aware that, you know, because there are so many, because the novel is already fairly dense. There are a lot of things going I on. See. To kind of make that character too complicated and then to kill her off seemed like, introducing more complication than was necessary to get the story going. Mm, I see. That actually makes a lot of sense because you do explore so many interesting concepts in this book. I mean, from, you know, being uploaded and consciousness as a concept to cloning and and our, you know, like interwovenness with technology that I I see what you're saying. It's like, look, I have a lot of stuff I got to get to that's going (laughs) to blow your mind in the first place. So Perry just, we just need to move Perry out so we can get Kirlo on her journey. Poor Perry. Did you love her? Were you so sad? It was... I, I don't think we knew Perry enough to love her. I mean, I think Kirlo's love for her was, we saw how much it affected her, but I don't know if any of us loved Perry for herself. Okay, right. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and you think that if she had been more complex, then maybe you would have. Or maybe even if it was, because Perry died relatively early on in the novel. So I think even if we just like, yeah, had more scenes between mm-hmm. the two of them, it could have been, or even just like a like a flashback sequence of like how they kind of like, got to know each other and things like that yeah it just seemed like um yeah she died really early so it's just like ah i like so i think that's yeah sort of the birthplace of this question of like oh if she was still alive what would have happened (laughs) um so yeah but it definitely makes sense what you're saying in terms of because i mean it definitely was sort of a catalyst to getting things moving and also just also the way that perry died it was just like this like completely out of anyone's control it just sort of happened and so Mm. i think that kind of just added to the complexity of Kirilo's grief because it's like it's like granted yeah she can blame the salty that brought the disease but even then it's like that wasn't really the intent you know it's just it just was this unfortunate thing that took place and so it's like I it's it's interesting seeing that struggle of like I just like Kirilo wanting to really I guess avenge Perry in a way but at the same time it's like I mean this is just it it just happened (laughs) right it it just it was this unfortunate thing yeah it was yeah so right and kind of going off of Marcy's point too and then later when she is in a relationship with um with Cora not like it's less romantic but you do see more of an equity equitable relationship which you it makes you like see like oh well in in a way Kirlo's grown right because she can accept that Cora is an imperfect individual she I mean at times doesn't even care for her (laughs) but still they gain a relationship that you know different from sort of the romantic um idealism of of the of of the commune and living with 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 everyone there but it's it's still like a deep and kind of you know strong relationship so yeah, says so something about the difference between romantic, you know, relationships imagined romantically and relationships, you know, as they unfold kind of, I mean, really, because Cora is more of a friend, right? Right. And one that she, I mean, not even a friend at the start, she re- resents her profoundly. Yeah. Um, the only reason <laughs> yes. she, 
you know, Kirilo wants to take um, Cora up is because because of this of the sisterhood, which she's trying to save. And Cora has the thing that she needs. Right. Um, she doesn't like her. She's not interested in, in her as a person. It's just I've got to somehow take this person on board. How am I going to do it? <laughs> Like she's sure in many ways. She's not, you know, she's not. And I mean, this is the other thing, right? I, you know, that I think about, I guess because I teach and, and because in spite of everything I said about the apocalypse just now, I'm very aware, you know, that my students are feeling the weight of climate change and that it's going to get worse and all of that. And Mm -hmm. they are feeling very much the weight of that upon their shoulders because the older generations don't seem to be able to fix it. And and so something that I wanted to sort of emphasize in this novel as well is the way in which the young people are carrying an inordinate burden Mm -hmm. when they're actually not fully equipped. I mean, Kirilo is not a grown up. Right. Right. And so she has these extreme emotional reactions to things where you know, a little, little later in life, she might be, yeah, I'm really sad my lover is dead. But this person who brought the flu didn't mean harm. Right, right. She's not, she isn't grown up enough yet to see that. And I mean, in a way, it also echoes, you know, the forms of polarization that we were talking about earlier, where, you know, I think we're living in this moment and, you know, we're goaded by our communities sometimes, too. To take on more extreme political political conditions than we might when we're older, or when there's more more a more nuanced and complex way of thinking about a situation is offered to us at a broad social level. Mm. Trying to capture a little bit of that as well. Like she's very, it's like this is right, this is wrong. I'm pissed off, or I'm not. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And then as she goes through, she's like, oh, there are so many factors at play between k2 and the tiger flu and the tiger wine and the list and host yeah i definitely Mm. see that it goes from being like i know what's what everything is to oh there are so many political factors and i think even and i don't know marcy i feel like we've discussed this too as we get older Mm -hmm. you thought you, you 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 were like why don't we just fix everything and then you get a little older and you're like, oh, my God, everything's on fire. <laughs> Which yeah. fire do we put out first? Right. <laughs> and also everything is is in, um, in, is entangled, yes. right? Yes. If you fix something in one arena, it will probably break something somewhere else. And then the question is, where do you where do you fix? Where do you break? Is there a way of striking a balance so that everything is somewhat fixed or like how are you going to swing that? Right. And right. So it was that like, there's a kind of politics of complexity at work. Um, and that's something because, you know, in most novels of this type, I mean, the way one is instructed and encouraged to write them is you just you just make one change in the world and then you see how it plays out. And that's the way yeah. you write a little fiction novel. But I wanted to get at the you know, the problem of interdependence, the problem of complexity, mm. the problem of, you know, moving systems that interlock and affect one another um, in complicated ways and then put characters in it who, you know, as we all do, we go into these into the situation of our lives with mm-hmm. with the ever partial information. And then we make our judgments and have our feelings on the basis of that partial partial inf- information, because what else are you supposed to do? It means it means things are it means things are difficult and it means it's hard to get out of a hard spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good point. The interlocking part is definitely something that we start to see in the book with the um, 
just with the corporations and the sociopolitics, like there's, well, we should be frank. Me and Marcy did at points not necessarily understand everything that was happening in the book. So I'm going to po- pose a question based on my assumption of what happened. <laughs> and if you are like, that's not what that was about, I will officially um, defer to you. But so in my, in my understanding, the Middle Kingdom and the CEC were nation states, but hosts and lists were corporations. So it was almost in this world where corporations almost had a geopolitical power not tied to, to, to a physical space, but there were still places with physical, you know, the traditional, like a country, nation state. Yes. And so when you talk about the interlockingness, what I, when I started to like read the book and be like, oh, wait, we're talking about something that is in the future, but could very well happen is when I started to realize that these corporations weren't necessarily tied to the political, socio, like the, the the geographical space, but they still had power over the sure. people in um. Oh my God, where were they? In quarantine. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Is, is so that, think about Halliburton. Think about AT and T. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Or even I, my metaphor was was Apple or Samsung. Sure. Yeah. Think about Apple. Oh my goodness! It's all hail the overlord. Right, Google. You know, we have so many now. Yeah, yeah. And how did you? I guess because you wrote, you started writing this in the early two thousands. Did you see this happening? This projection of sort of corporations having so much, or are you even surprised yourself at how extensive it's gotten? It was already happening. You know, like in the two thousands, it was already happening. It was happening in the eighties. Like I think this is one of the things like, you know, in the 80s with the rise of neoliberalism with Reagan and Thatcher and that whole crew, that was when this, I mean, when it started, there was an intensification in um, the the power of private corporations um, Mm. through deregulation, right, to sort of take away the, the, the power of states, of democratic states to kind of control what goes on economically. Um, so in the U.S., for sure, in Britain, in Canada, it's also true. Um, and so I'm not the first one to think of these things. Like Neil Stevenson was thinking about it in Snow Crash. I'm sure there are others. I'm sure there are other novels from that time where people are already thinking about that kind of relationship of, of corporations to state. And I mean, they, as you know, as you're witnessing in the U.S. right now, I mean, your country is imploding because of the power. Too much power given to people with too much money. Right. Right. Right, right, right. And it's, and it's yep. really sort of unsettling, you know, the fa- the fabric, like the democratic yeah. fabric of of the of the state itself, um, in ways that are not good for people. And yeah, that stuff, you know, it's it started, it started, or it started, it intensified intensely in the eighties, and these conversations have been unfolding since mm-hmm. that time. Yeah, that's not that's not original, um, but of course, it's something I'm aware of, and um, and interested in because it keeps unfolding mm. oh. ah, and here i thought i was like well this just started now and you're like oh no walking back <laughs> three decades we, we were on this path a while ago <laughs> it's bad now that is for sure it's very very bad going on i mean and one might think back further too you know like you think about you know the colonial moment in canada like what the heck was the hudson's bay company doing right or right. you know in in india yeah. um East what Indian trading was the East India Company is a corporation yeah. that was set up, right, and ended up playing part in the establishment yeah. of a state, like a colonial state. So, in a way, it's like sure the '80s, but even farther back. That's a good point. It's just now. I think 
now for me, the, the, the fact that it can be on the internet, so it's almost like it can take over so much. But I mean, to be fair, yeah, Britain and India are not close to each other. So, <laughs> and somehow that managed to happen. That's a yeah. really good point. Yeah. Or um, Jane Matheson in China, you know, like, and that's, that's true. It's, so, yeah. yeah, it's really, it is um, a long standing, you know, money makes the internet, money makes the world go around. Um, on sort of like a, a slightly, a slightly different note, but kind of the same. What about the kind of the idea of consciousness? Because I think that the downloading and the uploading is a really yes. intense part of this book and, and the, the separation of the body and the body's turning into fish, which is very Soylent Green, I thought. But um... <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about Soylent Green, too. That is such a good movie. Oh, my God. So good. So I, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on, yeah, just what made you kind of want to explore consciousness outside of the body or, or life and death? And you'll hear the second half, me and Marcy have a home moment where we're wondering about yeah. Isabel Cho and her blowing up Chang and what that means. Is everyone dead? Were they already dead? What is happening? <laughs> and and it, like we kind of had a moment of what is our consciousness and what would it mean to us? So we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Sure. Yeah, sure. It is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I mean, so I would say, you know, that I, to be very clear, I don't have my own theory of consciousness. I leave that. Mm. To but I am interested in it as in a way that it's, it's in a way that it's circulating through speculative fiction and the way that we, that we imagine it in, in terms of our relationships with, you know, with computers and with the internet and our lives online generally, that is for sure that is for sure a thing. Mm -hmm. And then also I'm really interested in drugs. And, it, and the big reason for that is, you know, I'm a Hong Kong, Ch Hong Kong Chinese second generation. So, but mm -hmm. um, the way that I come to have my being in the West is through the opium trade, right? Like, I mean, not in media, it's not like my family were opium traders, but through the, uh, the opium war is what mm -hmm. propels mm -hmm. the making of Hong Kong as a, as a, as a place. And then the movement of people out from there. And so mm. how I come to have a life in the West, so interested in drugs. And then how can anybody not be paying attention to to our digital lives in this in this day and age? Like we have to because right. most of our lives are lived through these technologies. Right. Um, so these concerns are figured in a number of ways in the novel. There's the drug and light. You're right. There's the technology of the upload mm -hmm. and download. Um, and the storing of human memories on the mainframes, Chang and Ng. And then, yeah, and so in thinking about that stuff, I mean, one of the major metaphors at work in this novel is the metaphor that the brain is like a computer. Um, and then perhaps secondarily, the the internet is, li is like land. It's like a place. Hmm. Uh, again, neither of these original ideas, right? Like, in mm -hmm. fact, the Chinese word for um, for computer, it's um, electric brain. So we've been metaphorizing, oh. right? The computer as a brain ever since, ever since for, ever since forever. Mm. I've been thinking about this stuff. One uh, one of my favorite favorite movies of all time, in spite of its terrible, terrible, terrible sexism, um, is Blade Runner. And um, it is a good movie, and it is also sexist, I, but it's I've still good. It. <laughs> When they're thinking about consciousness, like for like a popular movie, you know, in the 80s, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it is. It's sexist as heck. Um, and I feel like, you know, it's sort of inadvertently one of my life's projects has become rewriting it to write the sexism out Ooh. of it. Hmm. <laughs> 
What the book? Manage, but I mean, it's, an, it's become a little bit of an obsession. So there's ways in which, you know, all my clone sisters, they're all Rachel. Mm. Oh, I love okay. Rachel. Um, I don't know if you remember, but in that movie, there's a scene where she's she's explaining to the policeman, to Deckard, um, that she can't be a replicant because she has childhood memories. Right. To prove them. Do you remember that? And she's like, yes, it's me with my mother. Um, and then he tells her memories that she's never told anyone. And she begins to cry because it's like, yeah. oh, this asshole knows my most, not only does this asshole know my most intimate memories, but um, my memories what, aren't real. Is that my memories aren't real or at yeah. least not original. Right. Right. So for me, there's a whole, like that whole thing about what constitutes the original originality of the self and the originality of one's memories is very, very interesting. Like as an immigrant, you know, as a good immigrant daughter mm. whose parents taught her, um, taught me English when I was little rather than Chinese because they were so worried that I would have an accent and they wanted me to, you know, not have a hard way in the world. And so it's like, okay, teach the kid English. It'll be, you know, way better. She'll have a way better life if she speaks English as a first language. So that was what they, that was what they did with, you know, all good intentions for giving their child the best life possible. But the upshot of it is I carry the bulk of the cultural memory I carry is not Chinese cultural memory. It's Western cultural memory. Mm. So almost and, feels like like Rachel, like like a clone. Like there's a, a clone element in it. Like almost like these aren't mine. Yeah, you got yeah. it. So there's a way. I think that's part of why you know I identify with that character so powerfully is because it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I'm like a replicant. Like I'm pumped full of someone else's culture, um, if not someone else's memories, and I imagine it as my own. And in a sense, it is my own, right? Like the only it's the only it's the first culture I have. Um, just as the first and only childhood I have is the childhood that I had in Newfoundland, even though there's very few people in this world who would understand me as a Newfoundlander. And what does that mean? Oh, right? no. Now I'm going to have to examine myself and <laughs> my feelings. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's so interesting. I did not pull for in, it in that direction. And I really like that concept. I, it's terrifying, but it's it's interesting. Slightly terrifying, right? Yeah. I think part of the reason that it's terrifying is, you know, that one of the major tenets of kind of Western subjectivity is that we're all individuals, right? Right. Mm. And that idea that we're all individuals is a Western cultural production that gets super ramped at the Enlightenment. And so, you know, if you guys have studied your critical theory, it's all about having a speaking self, having an I, an I mean, mm. really, really important in order to be a Western subject. It's not necessarily mm. like other cultures don't hold the eye in such high regard necessarily. So for those of us, right, so the project of assimilation, it's not just about into a language, into a culture, but it's also into, you know, a subjective form of being. Yeah. One might not otherwise occupy like in another cu cultural formation, in another time, in another place. Um, that's, so, that's very true. So that gets interesting in relation to the mind-body split, which is another driving force in the novel, right? Without this metaphor, right. um, the computer is like your brain. There would be, it would be impossible to think of the upload. Mm, I see. Right. And the yeah. upload, of course, the upload, you know, again, that's not an original idea either. So that's me reading, you know, this sort of cyberpunk of kind of 70s, 80s, 90s, like reading William Gibson's Neuromancer or mm -hmm. reading, you know, um, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash or watching the Matrix movies. Have or you ever, by the way, have you ever seen the Animatrix? I love that short series and I feel like it. Yeah. With, anyway, is that good? 
some of the, the so it's a series of short episodes and some of them are really good some of them are fine but some of them are really good i think you would like it to be honest with you huh. Huh. um where can i watch them that's a good question i know where i never know where anything is anymore netflix well, was like disney no. and, <laughs> no. i don't know i want to find i'm gonna find that and i'm over here writing down like most of the books you're saying so i put neuromancer down and snow oh, crash <laughs> i can send you a list after if you want oh my god i would love it Ooh. so yeah it's just like all the, the ridiculous pop culture stuff that i grew up with right and somehow find myself kind of chewing on in my ripe old age shoot so what was i going to say oh but so about the mind body split so you don't get to have the upload without the mind without the mind body split and the metaphor the brain is like a computer right right so i in the world of the novel i just sort of let that metaphor play out and i guess it's an old cyberpunk trope and i just i'm not sure that i believe that the brain is like a computer but um but i let it i let it play out i guess as a way of being in conversation with you know all of these these prior texts But then there's also, you know, I'm also thinking about memory when I have Kirilo at the very start, uh, singing all the all the all the pop songs, but kind of in malapropism, right? She gets all the the words wrong, right? Mm. And this has all been handed to her um, from her mother, from her mother double Glory Bind, who wants Kirilo to remember the world as it was before, but of course Kirilo has never inhabited that world, so she can take in its language up and down the street, but she's because it doesn't land on anything that it was designed to land on. She kind yeah. of balances it for the weirdo world of Grist Village and makes of it something quite else. I think that, mm. that's hilarious. That's, that's my sense of humor. I think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another way of sort of thinking about the ways in which, you know, memories that are not your own can get put into you, but then you don't put them to use in the ways that the people who originally wrote those songs or whatever, I don't know if they had, imagined uses for the songs they imagined i guess a world that the song referred to and when that world is gone can you still mm. use the same language the same memories um to give you a kind of what in blade runner they call like a cushion like an emotional cushion in a world that is completely different this is so interesting i i didn't realize but yeah there's so much of our existence that we we assume as truth that we actually is only like things our parents told us right like I'm thinking as an immigrant myself with the thing the way I identify so much of it is just based on stories from my parents or things they've told me which is in a way a download and I think Marcy we're always talking about you know how many times when your uncles or aunts are like what you know about that (laughs) and you're like uncle you told me like eight times eight thousand times you have told me this (laughs) of course I know about this what (laughs) oh my god it's funny or even like you know going back to that example like you'll hear a song or like you'll be singing a song that like you know might have been more popular during your parents like youth and then it's just like oh like boy what you know about this it's just like again Every cookout, every family <laughs> gathering, you have played this. I, I know this. I promise. <laughs> I was there the whole time. You'll know it, and yet you'll never know it the way they know it, right? Exactly. Like, how many times you hear it. And I guess that's the frustration that they're expressing to you. Mm. Oh, wow. Never have it experientially the way they did. Because it's impossible to pass experience on in one way. And then another way, you never get to leave their experience behind. So both things are true. Right. Which is crazy. Ooh. Yeah. 
It's crazy. Huh. Well, I was just like, I mean, I know all the lyrics. So I don't know what y'all are talking about, but yeah, <laughs> that, under, that, undercurrent, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's like, I'm sure that song triggers a lot of experiences that I just literally was not alive to, <laughs> to experience. Like, what, what, so, what kinds of songs, Marcy? Oh, I'm just thinking about a lot of like, kind of like older R&B, maybe like um, some like Motown stuff, just sort of like, like music from, I would say... Like like sort of like seventies era, like a lot of like just sort of co sort of um things like that. Yeah, I know it's just like it's just interesting kind of hearing my parents um take on that because I'm always like y'all always play Earth Wind and Fire, so I'm always singing it. And (laughs) here we are, and it's like and it's funny because like whenever I listen to those songs, it's like it's like it brings me to like a nostalgia of like my own youth and like but it's just like it's it's like their presence is always grounded in that. It's like, it makes me think about like my family or like them, but it's not like I have like my own independent memory of those songs. It just reminds me of certain people who I, right. who I like. Right. That and just... they, probably have, they probably have their own youthful memories attached to that. Right. And that's what they like music, right? Mm-hmm. It's really sweet. I think that's really lovely. <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah. Speaking of, of culture, I kind of wanted to ask a question related to futurism but i kind of marcy do you want to have a question you want to ask first no nothing yeah no okay Go ahead, yeah. Uh, <laughs> i um so i really love afrofuturism i feel like that was like like some people like find communism in college i like saw a poster of afrofuturism yes. and was radically changed for the rest of my life <laughs> 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 i was like this is like star wars with black people anyway but um and i <laughs> i love the way that afrofuturism pulls from the past, but also that, you know, and then projects the body into the future. And then it kind of contends with, you know, culture and loss of culture and all and all these things. And while I was reading the book, I, I remember one point, it's when Kirlo is like partially downloaded into Aang. And the scene, I, it's not like anyone said it, but it felt like I was in the ancient Chinese fairy tale. It, it felt like Dream of the Red Chamber in its formality, even though they were all in a computer server. <laughs> and I was like, this is kind of wild. And it made me think of the idea of Asian futurism as a concept and and you know as 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 me and, and, and Marcy are, are black Americans you know we have Asian Americans we have all sorts of Americans with a hyphen or maybe mm. it's kind of even hard to say Americans with a hyphen right because that's already making us the other but but anyway the, the point of the question was what does that look like do you think for Asian Americans is there is there an Asian future or Asian Canadians is there an Asian futurism and what does it try to accomplish or what does it give us or, you know, just your thoughts? Yeah, this is such a great question, Akko. And it's also so hard. Ugh, my brain goes in like so many different directions because, you know, on the one hand, I would love to say, yeah, I really think there is and it works like that. Um, and but then there's also a part of me that wants to be really careful about, you know, appropriating African-American experience mm-hmm. um, and culture. Mm-hmm because I I do think that I know that the way blackness and the way Asianness work in the Americas are different in ways that, you know, in order for me, like at least to try to do the work of a halfway decent ally, I need to think about how those differences work and what it might mean to claim a parallel form. Do you know what I mean? I see. I see. Yeah. So then, yeah. I'll, allow me to change the question a little bit and make it more about the Asian experience and the Asian body being projected into the future. Just because I think the book does that in a lot of ways, if I'm 
moderately correct about my reading of it. You know, the Middle Kingdom is kind of a China metaphor. Yeah. And it, it, it's Middle kind Kingdom of is the Chinese name for China. Right. It's Zhong right. Zhong means middle and then Guo means country. So it's the middle. Yeah. Right. So I, I guess I wanted to know about from from your experience, what does it mean to you uh, to to project your body in the future, to project your culture in the future, and what were I guess what was your your perspective when you were doing this and writing this way? Right. In terms of projecting my own way of being into the future, and you're right, there's an element of that that you know is connected to Asianness or at least Chineseness or something like that. I'm aware in particular of certain. I guess they're they're like, I would say they're chi- they're Chinese formations or Chinese, like I'm a, you know one of the things that I'm kind of kind of consciously aware of is all the shit that's happened to Chinese women and girls over the centuries, mm. um, particularly if you don't come from a come from come from wealth. I see. Um, my family, I mean, we're fairly middle class, but I I think. It, it may not have been for long. I don't know much about my own history. Um, so, you know, I'm conscious of things like, you know, speaking again of our lives online, who's making all those computers and cell phones and, you know, all like ah. tablets and all of that, right? You probably know a little bit about the labor conditions at Foxconn. Mm-hmm. Um, the way. So there's a long history of kind of the exploitation of Asian women's labor for the maintenance of, Confucian patriarchy of the state in its various forms mm. times in history. Mm. And so I would say maybe like for Asian to think about, and I mean with these clone figures, I'm for sure thinking about that as well, right? Like the Gris sisters have been manufactured by a company for the purposes of labor and experimentation. And they're not right. meant to be disposed mm-hmm. in the imagination of the company that's built them. And so then the idea is that, you know, these are people who were not meant to survive, but who have escaped and who have found a way to do so. And so that's something that, you know, I am interested. Like you think about all the sex work as well, you know, like that has been put on not just Chinese women, but I mean, Asian, you know, Asian women from across a range of Asian cultures. Um, So that I guess I, I guess I know I am interested in imagining these kinds of women into the future. Mm. that kind of you know threw me a little bit about the question um when you sent it to me was well i'm pretty sure you know that the prc and you know kind of particular form of prc confucian confucianism and patriarchy is going to f- survive just fine without novels by larissa Lai. do you know what i mean <laughs> um, that's, like when you're, that's why when you're asking the question about afrofuturism i'm like well there's some forms of asianness that are you know pretty violent pretty patriarchal p- pretty exploitative i'm not any more interested in seeing those go into the future than i am in seeing you know mm. what colonial forms of patriarchy and exploitation going into the future. I guess it's not so much the racial racialization of it. It's just the the patriarchy and the exploitation. I'm not interested in seeing go, going forward, and right. might carry mm-hmm. that as well. Um, ah, I see. So, yeah. Whereas, like when I think about Afrofuturism, like you know, I think about like I guess Octavia Butler in the first in the first instance, but then also mm-hmm. people, you know my good friend Nalo Hopkinson. I think about people like you know Nettie Corfor, and I think. It's it's interesting that you know it's women. Although Delaney was was not not is not a woman, but it's, he was he was a gay man. He is a gay man, and though I I think of their work as like profoundly liberatory work, right? That sort mm. of recognizing 
particular histories of slavery in particular, of colonization, and their imagination of the future is the people who these forces were attempting to destroy actually get to survive. Right. Mm -hmm. As far as there's a parallel project at work here, it's like the people who a range of systems meant to meant to destroy get to survive. Right. But broadly mm -hmm. is complicated because, yeah, just, you know, because of Japanese imperialism, because of Chinese imperialism, because of of all those kinds of things, it's just complicated. Yeah. And you kind of see mm. that with K2, right? You see kind of what you're saying with Cora. She clearly values family and is, 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 is very sacrificial, you know, of herself. But you do not see that reciprocity from K2 in the At story. All. Yeah. And so even in that, I was like, this is such an interesting way. And I'm speaking like as an outsider of this, but I have heard, you know, my friends who are Asian, um, female Asian friends talk about, you know, how the power imbalance that can occur and, and then it gets more complicated when you come to America because then there's, you know, the, the, the racism against Asian males. So it, and, and then it just all gets very complicated, but um, it was cool to see in the story, just sort of you kind of contending with, you know, okay, the, the family structures that have been given into Asian families and, and what does that mean in the future and what stays and what goes and how do we dismantle that? And what do we keep? And it was really cool to see that as someone who's like, I was like, this is kind of cool. And I, it's kind of cool to see how other people contend with their culture projected into the future in the same way I have to contend with what, you know, what my what my culture as as, as an African immigrant looks like in the future. So that's why I asked the question to give context. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really <laughs> lovely question. Thank you for asking. It's a great question. And it's really important. And, the, you know, the other thing I want to say is I feel a profound debt to Afrofuturism, right? That like Octavia is like one of my, you know, favorite writers of all time. I've learned so much reading her books. And, you know, now I'll have mm -hmm like of my own generation has been such a supportive peer and mentor. And so um, I guess I, I also wanted to recognize, you know, the conversations across and the debts owed across. I think it's really important to do that and just not, um, not imagine that somehow there are these, these silos that because we're marginalized and we're racialized differently that we don't have relationship with one another because of course right. we. Mm -hmm. oh, this is so great. Well, oh my gosh, we... thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes, Larissa, thank you so, so, so much for this. We we definitely want to be respectful of your time. Yes. But I guess just again, for our listeners that might be interested sort of in, in writing or getting to know the writing process, do you have sort of like any advice or resources, opportunities, affirmation that you would sort of offer to any new or aspiring writers that might be listening? Sure, of course. Of course I do. Um, so one of the things, you know, as I was telling you earlier, I also teach. One of the things that I think like is a big surprise to people when they start writing is that they don't realize how little inspiration is required and how much hard work. Mm. What I would say, first of all, is think of it as a practice. So it's not that much different than if you wanted to become like a baseball player or a football player or, or a pianist or something like that. You need mm -hmm. to practice every day. You need to not worry about whether the writing is good or bad. You just need to do it regularly mm. and edit and revise later. And then advice, piece of advice number two is you got to edit and revise a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the hard part. You got to do it. You got to do it a lot. Kill your darlings. Throw out your babies. 
you'll be mm-hmm. amazed to learn, you know, in the writing and the rewriting about your own worlds and about both inner and outer and about your own words, right? Your own language. Um, mm-hmm. Learn so much about the language. You might think you're already fluent, but it's in the editing and the revising that you really realize, like, for all it's a colonial tongue and it's so messed up and all of that, it is a English is a profoundly interesting language and it's a deep language and it's it's full of rich, you know, it's very it's rich and it's full of all of this kind of possibility within itself, like within mm-hmm. like within like a single word with all its etymologies and all of that, or the way it sounds and all of that kind of stuff. And you'll find your own ways as well of, you know, working with worlds, of working with language that can and eventually do become your own, but you have to do it a lot, a lot, a lot, and you have to edit and revise a lot. Mm. That is wow. fair. Thank you. (laughs) So yes, everyone, you got to do it every day. (laughs) But uh, also we wanted to ask you, is there any upcoming work that you're working on or anything you want to promote for the readers to look out for? Nice of you to ask that. I'm working on a poetry book right now. It's called Iron Goddess of Mercy. Um, And it's getting at some of the same themes, you know, that we were talking about, of trying to think about history my own place and being in it but it's not so much about the i me mind because i'm trying to break the hold of mm. that western kind of construction of the self mm. and it also is still kind of getting at the relational piece and the problem of lateral violence i don't know when it will be out oh and iron goddess of mercy is the name of a kind of tea oh gotcha <laughs> oh really <laughs> that's a badass tea right there listen <laughs> <laughs> You want something done? Get that, dude. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, this is so funny. Do you have any, um, like, I don't know, social media channels or like a website oh, or anything that you sure. recommend for folks to find you? Yeah, sure. So I have a personal website that's just www.larissalai.com, and then I also, um, here at the University of Calgary, through my Canada Research Chair, I'm running, um, I call it an uncenter, and it's called the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing. Ooh, insurgent. Um, Yes, surgeon. And um, for folks who aren't in Calgary, um, we're gonna we're starting to we're gonna start to podcast. So soon you'll have a cousin out there in the podcast. Oh, (laughs) and that website is www.tiahouse.ca. Great. Okay, this is awesome. Oh my gosh. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Larissa, thank you so much for a great, great, great interview. We will definitely be sure to put all those resources in the show notes um, and things of that nature. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with before we wrap up? I just wanted to say thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. And you've been such thoughtful and generous readers. And I I just really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Now we're embarrassed. Right. (laughs) So, so Aku, is there is there anything else that we should leave our listeners with before we head out? Well, uh, you can visit our website at thesecoloredpages.com. You can also email us any thoughts that you have at thesecoloredpages at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter if that moves you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, um, just remember, until we see you next time, to stay, stay colorful! colorful.